Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the LSE. My name's Dr. Coretta Phillips. I'm an associate professor or reader in old money um, at, in the Department of Social Policy at the LSE here. Um, and I'm really pleased to welcome all of you to this evening's events, looking at um, questions of racial inequalities in Britain in 2019. We have four amazing speakers tonight that I'd like to welcome. I'll introduce them in, uh, in, in a moment, but um, we will be hearing from David Lammy, Kawant Bhopal, uh, Pfizer Shaheen, and Clive James Nwonka. Um, I should say, first of all, for those uh, Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is... Ah, <laughs> yes, LSE McPherson 20, 20 years on. Um, and can I ask all of you to put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the evening? Uh, and also a reminder that this evening's event is being recorded and hopefully... Um, barring any technical difficulties, it will be available as a podcast. So, to our speakers, let me introduce them. So, many of you, of course, will know David Lammy, who's Labour MP um, for Tottenham. David has been a Member of Parliament for his home constituency since 2000. He's recently led the campaign for Windrush British Citizens um, to be granted British, British citizenship and also to be granted compensation by the government. He's been at the forefront of the fight for justice um, for the Grenfell Towers family and he's also run a very high-profile campaign calling on Oxbridge to improve its access to minority ethnic students, Oxbridge and other elite institutions, we might add. <laughs> Um, and also those from disadvantaged backgrounds. Although our primary focus, uh, sorry, although his primary focus, um, and tonight is we're thinking very much about policing, David, of course, has also uh, been responsible for the independent review looking at criminal justice outcomes post-policing, um, and so I hope that we'll get an opportunity to talk about um, that as well. Um, so welcome to David. Professor Kawant Bhopal is Professor of Education um, and Social Justice at the University of Birmingham um, and also a visiting professor at Harvard University. She's conducted research on exploring discourses of identity and intersectionality, examining the lives of black minority ethnic groups, particularly uh, or in addition focusing on the experience of Gypsies and Travellers, who often in the uh, race field more generally um, have been neglected. Her most recent book, which I think she'll be touching on tonight, is entitled White Privilege, The Myth of a Post-Racial Society. And this was published in 2018 by Policy Press. Dr. Clive James Nwonka is a fellow, an LSE fellow in film studies in the Department of Social, oh, almost said social policy, sociology at the LSE. His work uh, centres on issues of realism, race, class and representation in British and American cinema and also he's interested in interrogating the institutional frameworks of the British film and TV industries. His first book will be published next year, entitled The Aesthetics of British Urban Cinema. 
And then uh, finally, my, uh, Dr. Faiza Shaheen is the director of CLASS, the Center for Labor and Social Studies. Prior to this, Faiza was the head of inequality and sustainable development at Save the Children UK, where she led on the development of a global campaign on inequalities in child outcomes. And Pfizer is also the Labour candidate for Chingford and uh, Woodford Green. Against Ian Duncan Smith. Pardon? <laughs> Is it against Ian Duncan Smith? This right. Like... <laughs> but we're not talking about Brexit tonight, are we? Shame. <laughs> or perhaps we will. Okay, a few words before we begin. I'm sure I don't need to remind everyone here, in 1993, black teenager Stephen Lawrence was the victim of a fatal racist murder in South London. As a South Londoner myself, it's important, I think, to underline that it wasn't the first racist murder that had happened in South London. It was one of several. Six years after the murder, um, after, of course, the extensive efforts of his family, friends, and the Stephen Lawrence campaign, Sir William McPherson published what we now refer to as the McPherson Report. This reflected on a public inquiry into the murder, into the racist murder, and also into the flawed investigation of it by the Metropolitan Police Service. And, of course, the headline infamous finding was that the murder investigation had been marred by, uh, sorry, in quotes, marred by a combination of professional incompetence, institutional racism, and a failure of leadership by senior officers. And of course, more recently, we've also heard very much about corruption um, in the Metropolitan Police Service as well. McPherson made 70 recommendations, which were very wide-ranging, um, but were centred around trying to increase trust and confidence um, and, of course, that's what we'll be reflecting on the, uh, uh, this evening. And some of the reforms are around um, the recording and investigation of racist incidents, changes to discriminatory stop and search practices, increasing both the junior and senior presence of minority ethnic police officers, improving the complaint system and also changes to education in schools to prevent racism, particularly in relation to exclusions. So we're now, of course, in February 2019, 20 years on from the publication of the report. And tonight's event is expanded to think beyond policing and beyond criminal justice to think about where we are in relation to racial inequalities in Britain. So in particular, we're interested tonight, and the speakers will be considering um, the, uh, the need to address racial inequalities and looking at legislation, looking at policing, criminal justice, but also looking at socioeconomic inequalities and um, also thinking about the role of the media, the role of politicians, of course, and then more generally both um, the role of uh, education in terms of what's provided in compulsory education, in higher education, and then also education as we might understand it more broadly as a public good. So um, tonight after the uh, lectures there'll be a chance for uh, audience participation and you'll be able to put your questions uh, to our speakers. So well, kick off with David Lammy.
Well, thank you. And can I thank um, Clive Nwonka particularly for this invitation? And of course, it's great to be here at the LSE. I've spoken here on a number of occasions, but not for a little while, so it's, it's great. And um, this was an invitation that I wanted to accept because it's just so important to honour Stephen's life uh, and the campaign for justice, which we continue to fight. So let's just go back to Stephen. Stephen Lawrence was 18 years old in 1993. He was raised in Plumstead by his mother, Doreen, who was a special needs teacher, and his father, Neville, a carpenter and a plasterer. Both had moved to Britain, like my parents, from the West Indies in the 1960s. Stephen loved listening to music on his Walkman. He made money by designing and selling his own T-shirts with rappers and political icons painted onto them. Athletic and tall, Stephen also excelled on the running track and represented his local athletics club. Stephen was just one of those people who had an enthusiasm for life. He managed to be both popular and studious. As a teenager, uh, this is no mean feat. He chose to study English, physics, and design and technology for A-levels on the condition that he passed these exams that he could seek secured. He wanted to take up his dream job as an architect. But Stephen was never given the opportunity to fulfill that dream he'd worked so hard towards. On the 22nd of April, 1993, Stephen Lawrence was fatally stabbed by a gang of white teenagers in Eltham. Media outlets began to report a racially charged attack. I remember back then asking myself, how, when does racially charged become racist? Is it 10%, 30%, 50%? Stephen's murder was not racially motivated, racially tinged, or racially loaded. It was racist. And Stephen Lawrence was murdered because he was black. A BMP stronghold, Eltham symbolized the rise in anti-immigrant sentiment, xenophobic rhetoric, and the fear of the other across the UK in the 1980s and 90s. The last thing that Stephen heard was the repeated cacophony of the N-word. And there was something about the random yet targeted nature of the attack that made me think it could have been me. Stephen was a young black man, just a couple of years younger than I was, he was a boy trying to make something of his life, a boy who loved his mother and wanted to make her proud. I was studying just up the road at SOAS at the time. I saw a lot of myself in him. Within 24 hours of Stephen's murder, the police had been given photo, oral, written evidence of the suspect's names and addresses by witnesses. If the suspects were black, I have no doubt that the police would have rounded up as many boys as possible until they found the suspects. Instead, they did nothing. To them, the mountain of information they received was not evidence, it was hearsay. And they refused to approach the suspects. 
And at the time when the Lawrence family were grieving, they had to sit and listen to the police accusing Stephen of being a robber who was up to no good. His friend, Dwayne Brooks, who watched his close friend killed, uh, was called violent, uncooperative, a liar by the police. He was a victim, but he was treated like a suspect. One of the things that they accused Dwayne of lying about was that the attackers used the N-word. The police were determined to deny that this was a racist attack. Police tapes even show police officers claiming that Stephen's race was incidental to the crime. It took the direct intervention of Nelson Mandela, who met the Lawrence family while visiting the UK in May of that year, for the police to finally arrest the suspects. The police had to be publicly and nationally embarrassed for them to wake up and do their job. In court, Dwayne Brooks maintained he correctly identified two suspects, but the police undermined Dwayne's statement, attacking his credibility. And in July of that year, all charges against the suspects were dropped. Immediately after the trial, the Daily Mail actually published a paper insisting the suspects were guilty of murder. You know that we're in trouble when we have to rely on the Daily Mail. <laughs> it took 19 years for the state to finally convict just two suspects. The remaining three are still at large. It was difficult to believe that the abject failure of the police was just incompetence. And these suspicions were confirmed by the McPherson report in February 1999. The report found that the police investigation into Stephen's murder was marred by a combination of professional incompetence, institutional racism, and a failure of leadership by senior officers. The inclusion of institutional racism was or had the potential to be a key turning point in Britain's race relations. McPherson defined institutional racism, the collective failure of an organization to provide an appropriate and professional service to people of their, for their, because of their color, culture, or ethnic origin. It can be seen or detected, it went on, in processes, attitudes, and behavior, which amount to discrimination through unwitting prejudice, ignorance, thoughtlessness, and racist stereotyping which disadvantage minority ethnic people. The report published 70 recommendations that would increase BAME representation in the police, subject the police to greater public control, and bind them more tightly to race relations legislation. It made these recommendations in the context of a much wider commitment to combat racism. Let me read you a quote from the report. A high priority must be for society to purge itself of such racist prejudice and violence which infected those who committed this crime for no other reason than that Stephen Lawrence was black. Following the report, as a young lawyer, I was optimistic that the UK was ready to change. A new Labour government, which I eventually became part of, came in with a multiculturalist agenda, or the biggest at least that this country had witnessed. In the first term alone, we introduced the Race Relations Amendment Act, abolished the uh, tough primary purpose rule, and blocked, that blocked entry to the UK for thousands of spouses married to British citizens, and we introduced faith schools for Muslims and other religions. And today, on balance, 
um, some of those reforms have come to fruition. Perhaps we're moving in the right direction. There are, for example, more mixed-race people in the UK than ever before. <coughs> in the first 10 years of the 2000s, the percentage of our population that identified are of mixed race or heritage doubled. The UK, it seems, is increasingly becoming a, a, a melting pot where love at least transcends race as a cultural indicator of where we might be heading. And as education becomes more evenly shared around, the potential of black children is being recognised. When I was at university, being black was rare. Between 2002 and 2017, though the percentage of people at university from a black, Asian or minority ethnic background increased from 13% to 20%, and the number of black students accepted by Russell Group universities such as this increased by 62%. Uh, between 2010 and 2015. It's also true that black culture is to some extent celebrated. From Ben Zephaniah to Stormzy, black musicians are setting uh, out music on their own terms and originality. We've got actors like Sophie Okonedu and Idris Elba who are opening audiences' eyes to new stories, moving beyond skin colour. And they are liberating the sense of the black hero too which we perhaps best see personified in films like Black Panther. And after a false start, the police themselves have made progress. Immediately following the McPherson report, police officers were offended by claims of institutional racism. I can't say I was shocked to hear that the Met were offended by claims that racism existed. One superintendent said that the accusations of institutional racism were, I quote, utter rubbish. It was a kangaroo court. I know they're wrong. I've been in the Met for 32 years. <laughs> Why so defensive, you might ask? Because they were scarred, or scared, sorry, of admitting their own complicity in discriminatory practices. However, they at least accepted that things needed to change and got on board with substantive recommendations in the report, like a patient who takes his prescription medicine whilst denying the doctor's diagnosis. Over time, the patient came to terms with their illness. On the 10th anniversary of Stephen Lawrence's murder, Commander Cressida Dick conceded that the Met was and still is institutionally racist. Cressida Dick also said, however, that the Met has changed dramatically and is a completely different organisation to the one that failed the Lawrence family. And there's some truth in this. Uh, black representation in the Metropolitan Police increased from 9% in 1999 to 12.4% in 2016. Between April 2015 and February 2016, 27.3%, uh, that's over a quarter of the new recruits, come from black or minority ethnic backgrounds. The Met even began to pilot race awareness training programs for officers to recognise unconscious bias. But I stand here today in 2019, and frankly, it would be disingenuous for me to say that the issues that McPherson was trying to address don't still persist in our society. I mean this both in the context of the police and wider, also, racial discrimination in the UK. BAME representation is ultimately still below the targets that were originally set. 
12% or so in the Met is still not good enough, particularly when you look at the percentage of ethnic minorities across London, uh, which is almost at 50%, frankly, and in areas like mine is well beyond that. And representation in the national police force is much pashier. If we're in West Yorkshire, only 5.1% of police officers coming from a BAME background compared to a population in West Yorkshire of 18.2%. Most of the increases in BME representation is largely limited also to junior roles in the force. And one of the key explanations of this lack of representation is that for most young black people, being a police officer is just not a role model that you aspire to. Far from it. In most of the black community, the police force is still perceived as, frankly, the enemy. And in 2008, 28% of people from an ethnic minority community felt that they are treated worse by the police because of their race. You're nearly nine times more likely to be stopped and searched if you're black than if you're white, despite the fact that drugs are less likely to be found. And there's a greater disproportionality in the number of black men in prison here than in the US. As of 2019, 51% of the inmates in younger offender institutions in our country are from a black, Asian or minority ethnic background. That's nearly four times the 14% UK uh, BAME population. And a lot is said about the prison industrial complex in America, it is really important to understand that per capita, much of the figures in this country are worse. It's no surprise then that black boys feel like the police force is no place for them. The same kind of self-fulfilling prophecy emerges in the context of educational inequality. Nearly 80% of white students were awarded a first class or 2-1 degree, compared with just 66% of their BME counterparts. Earlier this week, I had the pleasure of listening to a Tory MP who asked Doreen Lawrence, are universities institutionally less positive towards black students? There's an allegory to the term institutional racism. The attainment gap between the Social apartheid taking place in our schools, black and mixed ethnic boys are three times more likely than white boys to be permanently excluded from school. And black boys are increasingly the victims of the government's relentless destruction of local youth services. 25% of victims of knife homicides last year were black, the highest proportion since data was first collected in 1997. I was invited this evening to share thoughts on the legacy of the McPherson report. I was asked to speak, if you like, about institutional racism in the context of law policing and criminal justice, but I think it would be an opportunity wasted, frankly, if I didn't go beyond this. There's a key word that McPherson used to define institutional racism. The word was unwitting. But I'm not entirely comfortable with a discussion that limits itself to non-deliberate or unconscious bias. There's something much deeper at the heart of all this. It's a historical, perennial, ideological force that explains how this bias 
comes to being in the first place. It's something that for many people is too awkward to address. At the root of institutional bias lies a belief that it isn't unwitting. It's conscious. It's articulated. It's developed. It's built on. And it's what killed Stephen Lawrence. The belief is white supremacy. The belief that whites are genetically superior began with a misreading of Darwin after rampantly exploiting black Africans for slave labor, Europeans were provided with a neat and tidy explanation for their economic and military strength. They were just better able to adapt to their environment over a long period of time. An entire empire was built on this ideas. Whites came to civilize black and brown primitives and savages. Since then, white supremacists have lapped up the lasting effects of colonialism, exploitation, and slavery on black communities. They see it as evidence for the inferiority of black communities that were oppressed. White supremacy exists in those like the US conservative commentator Pat Buchanan, who justifies the disproportionality of black men in the criminal justice system by implying that they're naturally unruly and violent. White supremacy exists in the language of Donald Trump, who said that they were very fine people on both sides in the wake of the Nazi protests in Charlottesville. White supremacy exists in those police trainees who in 2003 were filmed saying that Stephen Lawrence deserved to die. White supremacy exists in the torrents of racist abuse I and my office receive daily. Why don't you get in your canoe and paddle back to Niggerland, climb up a tree and eat a banana? And it existed last year when a group of white men and women laughed at the burnt effigy of Grenfell Tower with cardboard cutouts of black and brown men, women, and children. For some in this country, black lives simply matter less. And it goes without saying that the pseudo-scientific justification for white supremacy is a complete lie. The neo-Darwinian conception of ethnic destiny is plainly false, and we know that race is a social construct. Unfortunately, some people take this fact to mean that race is therefore meaningless. These are the people who think that their job is not to see race. <laughs> but this does little to expose racist structures which people of color are subject to every day. It's what enables people to deny the existence of racism. I don't see race, you often hear them say, but we cannot fight racist institutions if we close our eyes. Part of my message today is that black communities have had enough of people trying to deny their experiences. This is part of a broader trend in which race has simply been taken off the table when the Equality Act was introduced in 2010 under a Labour government, this merged nine pieces of legislation. 
In merging them, it replaced the Sex Discrimination Act, the Disability Discrimination Act, the Race Relations Act. And the all-encompassing nature of this legislation was reflected in the increasing use of this new term, diversity and inclusion. <laughs> At the time, I knew it was a mistake because it removes our ability to talk about race. Individual pieces of legislation exist for a reason. They reflect the uniqueness of the different kinds of oppression different kinds of groups can feel. The discrimination that women face is not the same as the discrimination that ethnic minorities face. Intersectionality, of course, is key. We cannot ignore those people who belong to more than one oppressed group, but surely there's a better way of listening to these people than to treat oppression as a merely an umbrella term. Where was the investigation into race pay inequality in the BBC? Where's the coverage of racial, racial underrepresentation in the FTSE 100 corporate boards and companies? When we ignore race, we end up with Windrush. It was those who were blind to race that oversaw thousands of British citizens being incorrectly deported, detained and made destitute. Stephen Lawrence's family came to the UK from the West Indies. Make no mistake, we failed them. And then we failed an entire generation. Do we really think that Windrush can be rectified by broad targets on inclusion and diversity. Part of the reason why it won't is precisely because it doesn't take seriously the infection of white supremacy. And as Reddiano Lodge said, asking for a slither of disproportionate power is too polite a request. I don't want to be included. Instead, I want to question who created the standard in the first place. The Grenfell effigy, or the racist male I've spoken about, are extreme cases. But extreme cases are embedded within normalised structures of racism. Structures that are built on white supremacist beliefs that often, that over time, have fueled exactly the kind of institutional bias that McPherson uncovered. Racism is prejudice plus power. And so it takes an uncomfortable look in the mirror if society is ever going to dismantle this brutal equation. And it's really, really important in 2019 to underlie the power bit of that story. Who has the power? Why do they protect it and retain it? And how easily are they prepared to give it up? I don't want to cast aside the deep impact of class division here in the UK. I am here as a Labour politician. So this conversation is not exclusive, you know, exclusive to a discussion about class as well. Years of austerity and neglect have mercilessly ignored people's desperate cries of vulnerability in parts of our country like the north and seaside towns. This means it's not just black people who suffer. 82% of Oxford students who are from the top social classes, the children of barristers, doctors and chief executives. There are more offers made to students from 
eaten than students on free school meals across our country. The interesting thing was when I raised these issues, and I did FOIs the first time round into race and ethnicity, who gets to go to Oxford and Cambridge, into social class and background, and into geography. What is interesting, the Guardian runs on race because it sells newspapers. My conversation is framed as solely about race. And what's really depressing about this country is no one wants to talk about class and no one but no one wants to talk about geography. No one wants to talk about the fact that there are more young people from Richmond and Barnet than goes to those institutions than the whole of Leeds, the whole of Sheffield, the whole of Birmingham combined. That is how low on the priority order class ranks and geography ranks in this country. I wanted to talk about it, but you might say it's interesting. Why is it only David Lammy seems to want to raise these issues, fighting for the rights of Northerners <laughs> and others in our society? So I don't want to cast aside the deep impact of class division in the UK Years of austerity and neglect, as I say, have mercilessly ignored people's desperate cries of vulnerability. What we see also is a global far-right movement exploiting the white working class insecurities. Class divisions are exploited by hateful tribes who feed on individualist insecurities of loss. As wage depression uh, was attributed to immigrants instead of employers, voters found solace and comfort in the fantasy that people who look differently to them are to blame. Despite all of this, there is a bit to be positive about. I'm emboldened that Britain is increasingly resembling a place where racism is at least a conversation topic on the table. There is an impetus for change. It's just the conversation has yet to be transformed into a persistent, substantive, cross-party set of actions. Only with action comes Martin Luther King's nation, where people are not judged by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. To build this nation, the murder of Stephen Lawrence must remain a part of our collective memory, and we must ensure that his legacy is not one of victimhood, but of empowerment. His memory should give us the strength to seize our stake in the institutions that exist for all of us, because if we let his memory fade, history will continue to repeat itself. So what can we do? Look, in a speech like this, it's impossible for me to do justice to solutions. For disproportionality in the criminal justice system, I, I would ask you to read my independent review, which is freely available um, on the net. For broader issues, I would ask you to read the books, particularly in the last couple of years, of people like René Lodge, Afia Hirsch, uh, we've got uh, Coet Bocal here. Read those books. But there are several lessons I want to take away from today that I think are important. First, we need to understand the roots of white supremacy and reject the false science that underlies it. We need to be clear that there are no genetic 
differences between re relevant, sorry, genetic differences between races. You cannot tell someone's worth, intelligence, or nature by the color of their skin. That means fessing up to your history, being open and honest about it, teaching it warts and alls in schools, and being real. That's not just in relation, by the way, to ethnic minorities. I've got a feeling that in the island of Ireland at the moment, they'd quite like us to be honest about our history. Some of what we're hearing from politicians suggests that they completely forgot the history of this country and its relationship with the island of Ireland, 1922, the famine and other things. Secondly, we have to provide real answers to the new populists who want to use the language of genetic difference to divide us. Those who blame packed hospitals, crumbling schools and bad services on migrants, foreigners, Muslims or blacks have to be called out. The media indulges in this fantasy as well and provides a misservice to the public and false balance. And frankly, in a social media age, this is a huge challenge and lies behind part, not all, but part of the story in the Brexit conversation. Second, I think we've got to rethink positive discrimination and affirmative action. It's not as straightforward as just as promoting black people, brown people. This, of course, has worked to some extent in the United States, but inequality in this country is tied up, as I said, not just with race, but also with class. So concepts are intertwined. The working class is not only white, it's often black. As Stuart Hall would no doubt have said, austerity is where race and class meet. Black single mothers in Tottenham and the young unemployed white men in Sunderland are both left behind. Let's break down the barriers positively to help them both get ahead. But what does that mean? It means giving up power for some. But as I said before, if that young man, let's give him a name, Boris Johnson, <laughs> who gets to Eton, who gets to Oxbridge, has a silver spoon in his mouth. If he just didn't go to Oxbridge, but went to Warwick, he'd still get white privilege. But we might help the young man from Sutherland or the young Somali girl from Grenfell Tower forward as well. That's the sort of positive discrimination I'm talking about. And, sorry, I've lost where I was now, got so carried away. <laughs> Third, we have to recognise that equal rights are not enough. And this is perhaps part of the critique of New Labour and that neoliberal project. In 2019, the barriers are economic as well as legal and rights-based. Liberal equality will always favour those who started at the top. We need real economic justice and the equality of opportunity if we're to bridge those divides. As Nelson Mandela once said, after climbing a great hill, one only finds that there are many more hills to climb. In 2019, we sit in a world where rights are increasingly open to all of us, black, brown, or white. 
we're legally entitled to live our best lives. We have increasing rates of inclusion in the police, in our culture, in the arts, in business and politics. We should be proud of this. But there are still so many hills that we have yet to walk over. Structural forces that still try to rank us based on colour or skin. Economic inequalities that inevitably hurt you more if you are black. A housing crisis that lets black people burn in tower blocks while wealthy white people look on unharmed. We will only scale these new hills of injustice with our eyes wide open. So tonight, I thank the LSE for inviting us all to renew that quest for justice. So I'd now like to introduce Professor Kawan Bhopal from the University of Birmingham. Thank you very much indeed. Massive thanks to Clive for giving me the opportunity tonight. So I've only got 10 minutes <laughs> to, to talk about the whole education system. So I will do my best. So forgive me if I speak really fast, but I only have 10 minutes. So what I'm going to talk about tonight is race, higher education and policy making. And I'm going to discuss that in relation to the myth of a post-racial society. Okay, so let's talk about policy making. Policy making paints a very positive picture in the UK higher education system. We've had the widening participation agenda, which, is, which was hugely important and introduced by the new Labour government in 1999. It was important because it gave, gave uh, marginalised communities and BME communities opportunities to attend higher education. And since it was introduced, it's shown to be hugely beneficial and important. We've had the Equality Act, which was introduced in 2010. The Equality Act is a very important piece of legislation because it brought together all previous acts into one single act. It's important because it contains protected characteristics of which race is one. We've had other initiatives that were in, have been introduced in higher education. We've had the Athena Swan Gender, which was introduced to, the, to progress the position of women in STEM subjects. We've also had the recently introduced Race Equality Charter, where universities are awarded a silver, bronze or gold award so that they can produce evidence to show that they are progressing the position of students and staff in higher education. However... I argue in my work that the Athena Swan Charter, the main beneficiaries of Athena Swan, have been white, middle-class women. We've also seen an increase in the number of black and minority ethnic students attending higher education institutions, though we need to recognise that there are differences within and between the different BME categories and groups, which I will talk about in a moment. However, Despite significant advances in policy making, inequalities in higher education continue to persist. Let me show you how that works. But before I, sh I do that, I think it's really important to go back to McPherson. In the last 20 years, the most important piece of legislation around race equality has been the Race Relations Amendment Act, which came out of McPherson. And the most important thing to come out of McPherson was the definition of institutional racism, which was defined as this. The collective failure of an organisation to, pro to provide an appropriate and 
professional service to people because of, because of their colour, culture. I better put my glasses on, I can't see anything. <laughs> That's better. Or ethnic origin. It can be seen or detected in processes, attitudes, and behaviour, which amount to discrimination through unwitting prejudice, ignorance, thoughtlessness, and racist stereotyping, which disadvantage minority ethnic people. So the legislation to come out of this that's been hugely important was the Race Relations Amendment Act 2000. And this was important because it made all public bodies, including schools, universities and colleges, accountable for race equality. Act, for, for race equality. And what was important was that schools, for instance, had to monitor and record the number of racist incidents and send them to their local authority in order that racism could be measured and indeed addressed. We then had the Equality Act, and the, from the Equality Act, we had the public sector equality duty, the PSED, which was, again, hugely important. However, since the, their introduction, schools are no, no longer expected to record racist incidents. This was a result of the coalition government. They disbanded this. So schools are no longer required to record how they are address, addressing equality duties. However... And, and they have no legal obligation to do so. However, the Department for Education indicates that it's good practice. So it's not in, in legal statute that they have to do it. So it depends on the individual school. So that's why the Equality Act is, in fact, um, disadvantageous when we're thinking about race. So let's talk about BME students in UK higher education. So in, in terms of providing... A contextual background. BME individuals make up 14% of the minority ethnic population. These are figures from the last census. 98.4% of students in 2016 and 17 disclosed their ethnicity. 22.7 were BME, and then you can see the different categories. What's particularly interesting in terms of the numbers of students is that the proportion of students who were black have seen the biggest growth amongst all of the ethnic groups. However, what I will show you is they are the groups who continue to remain disadvantaged. So, in 2016 to 2017, white students were more likely to receive a first or a 2-1 compared to BME students. There were differences within that category. So Chinese, Indian, and mixed heritage students were more likely to receive a first. Again, it's the black groups that were the most disadvantaged. There is a BME attainment gap of 13.6 percentage points. The biggest group to suffer is the black group again. And the BME is much lower, again, attainment gap is much lower for Chinese, Indian, and mixed heritage groups. So, when BME, um, let's talk about inequality, 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 first of all. I think that's a, really important, that's a really important title. BME students, when they do achieve good A-level grades compared to white students on average, we know that there are differences within that category. However, they are less likely in the first instance to make those applications to selective universities such, such as Oxbridge or Russell Group. And when they do apply, they are less likely to be offered places compared to their white counterparts who have comparable A-level grades. So BME students, especially black students, remain underrepresented in prestigious elite 
and Russell Group universities. And black students are more likely to drop out of university, citing favoritism towards white students, an ethnocentric curriculum, and racism. Those are the tip of the iceberg from 2018. I think it's really important to talk about transitions from undergraduate to postgraduate research and postgraduate talk, because this has a significant impact in terms of staffing in higher education and BME experiences. So whilst BME students have continued to have higher rates of transition to master's degrees, it's white students who continue to have higher rates of transition to postgraduate research, i.e. PhDs. And in my research, I argue that this is the result of access to financial and economic capital which affects transitions to postgraduate study, which affects access to the labour market and social mobility. Because the decisions that students make in the third year of their undergraduate study, our research suggests that this has a huge impact on social mobility, access to the labour market and future life chances. And again, it's black students that suffer the most. <coughs> BME students, specifically black students, they suffer an ethnic penalty in the labour market. They are more likely to be unemployed six months after they graduate compared to their white counterparts. This varies by ethnic group, with black groups suffering the most. This, 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 there are differences between gender and indeed geographical location. And there's also recent evidence to suggest that there is a BME ethnic pay, pay, back, pay gap specifically in higher education. And the Resolution Foundation recently reported processes of overt racism which continue to exist within the labour market. So let's look at staff, because student experiences in higher education, in, in some sense, have a domino effect in terms of who decides to take positions of power, if you like, within higher education. So there again is, um, the statistics show us that a high proportion of BME staff tend to be more, are more likely to be on fixed term contracts compared to white staff. They are underrepresented at the highest contract level and overrepresented in the lowest. So out of 154 UK higher education institutions, we only have three BME vice chancellors. A higher proportion of both UK and non-UK BME staff are on research-only contracts compared to white staff. And only 0.8% of staff are heads of institutions, as I've just said. And we only have 85 black professors in the UK, of which 26 are women. A larger proportion of white staff are more likely to be on the highest pay spine of 59,500 or more compared to BME staff. So why is this happening? We have an assumption, don't we, that universities are liberal, progressive, forward-thinking, social justice is at the heart of their agenda. Not so, at least my, my evidence suggests not so. There's processes of racism, exclusion and marginalisation continue to exist in higher education for both staff and students. So, for instance, staff have stereotypes of students. White middle-class students are seen as ideal. Chinese students are seen as quiet and passive. Black and Muslim students are seen as loud, challenging and aggressive. And there's also evidence to su suggest that unconscious bias and indeed conscious bias continues to exist in higher education where individuals have expectations from staff and students. So I wanted to talk a little bit about policy making and who benefits from, from what I call white policy making. And, and in my book I argue that 
universities or higher education institutions will only engage in policy making if it is for their own benefit. So I take a critical race theory perspective and a critical race studies perspective on this. And here I'd like to quote Derek Bell. He argues that whites will advance the course of racial, in, racial justice only when doing so coincides with their own self-interest. And my own colleague, David Gilborn, argues that the continued promotion of policies and practices that are known to be racially divisive testifies to a tacit intentionality in the system. So it's no accident that black students don't get a 2-1 or a 1st. It's no accident, accident that we only have 80 black professors. So it's a tacit intentionality in the system. And Gloria Ladson-Billings argues that whites are the main beneficiaries of educational policy making, even though these policies are designed to serve the marginalised. For example, white women have been the main beneficiaries of affirmative action. And I argue, as long as white identity and white privilege are not threatened, white groups are supportive of diversity and inclusive inclusion programs, such as Affirmative Action and the Race Equality Charter, because consequently they can sell themselves as diverse and fair, as long as their own white privilege remains intact and unthreatened. So, when I was thinking about what I was going to talk about today in relation to McPherson, I thought about this piece of research that I carried out, we carried out in 2011 which is about nine years ago. And, and at the time, we were looking at racism in rural schools, in rural areas. And this is a quote that we quoted then in 2011, which is still relevant today. So are we talking about new or are these just old racisms? So we said then in 2011, to argue that post-McPherson has resulted in a post-racial society is utterly absurd. Such discourses serve only to further disadvantage and marginalise black and minority ethnic communities. Racism exists at every level of society. It permeates our schools, our colleges and our universities. It is alive in all elements of society, our popular culture, our media and the social spaces that we occupy. That's why in 2019 this quote is still relevant. And this quote from 2018, I argue that higher education institutions are spaces of white privilege. They fail to cater for the experiences of BME groups. They employ a rhetoric of inclusion, but one that is rarely evidenced in practice or indeed outcomes. So, what has been the impact of McPherson? Is it that the more things change, the more they stay the same? Well, actually, I think that things have got worse, um, actually. I think that, and read my book, you know, that there is... <laughs> I've got, there's another plug coming for the book. Um, things have actually, one of the huge failures of policymaking, specifically McPherson and, in fact, neoliberalism, has been that what this has done has actually made the situation worse for black and minority ethnic communities, and black groups are the ones that have suffered. So McPherson has actually, in some sense, let people off the hook. So it's provided a tick box exercise, specifically in relation to education. So universities can say, yes, we are dealing with issues around race, but the Equality Act has put everything into one single act, so, so race has actually got lost within that. 
And what McPherson has done, or the Race Relations Amendment Act, has actually provided a smokescreen of what, what I call a smokescreen of conformity. So universities give the appearance of dealing with uh, issues of equity and inclusion and social justice. But again, it, looking at it from a critical race theory perspective, is for their own benefit, because this isn't evidenced in outcomes. And I argue that higher education institutions will only invest in inclusive policy making if it benefits them. So there is an appearance or a rhetoric of inclusion, which is an interest convergence approach. So despite these significant advances in policy making, racism continues to exist. In fact, it's got worse. Higher education institutions are institutionally racist, and the idea of post-racism continues to remain a myth. I argue that a failure to acknowledge racism results in a failure to act. Thank you. So please join me in welcoming um, homegrown, be careful how you use that word these days, um, Dr. Clay, Clive James Nwonka from the Department of Sociology, he's a fellow in film studies. Thank you. I would love to proceed, but I actually can't find my slides. <laughs> hmm? so much. Yes, it is here. <laughs> it's okay, Clive. Just leave that up there. It's fine. <laughs> Shameless appetizer. I know. Good, good, good. Yeah. <laughs> no one knows. So the connection between McPherson and my own interests is the reaction it produced in the cultural sector. And in the very, very short time I have um, this evening, I'd like to talk about that invisibility, race and the UK cultural industry. The findings of what we know now to be the McPherson report asserted that the Metropolitan Police investigation into the death of Stephen Lawrence was marred by a combination of pressure and incompetence institutional racism, and a failure of leadership by senior officers. McPherson made 70 recommendations with the objective of eliminating racist disadvantage in all aspects of policing. Although the report evaluated the situation from a policing perspective, this placed a plethora of issues onto the political agenda. And one consequence was that strategies for the monetization of the cultural industries were to intersect with those for social inclusion. For example, as well as informing the 2000 Race Relations Amendment Act, this introduced the equality impact assessments, requiring all public bodies to demonstrate that they are actively combating racism and promoting equality of opportunity and good race relations in all areas of their employment practice and service provision. Unified, these phenomena embody the fundamental tenets which would now emerge as diversity, or should I say the politics of diversity. The question is this, why was culture and creativity a key focus for the diversity agenda? New Labour's initial aim to develop a social inclusion agenda was articulated most vividly in Christmas 1998 publication, Creative Britain where he first conceived the idea of the sector operating as an industry, but particularly with a social imperative. The early 2000s, 
can be seen as a key moment in the concerted effort to increase the visibility of black and Asian faces within a climate of post-McPhersonism. Just two years after the report, the BBC's Director General, Greg Dyke, would confess that the corporation was hideously white. Assumptions about the utility of policy resided in the idea that social exclusion, crime, antisocial behavior, and community deprivation could somehow be remedied through the application and appreciation of culture. This social purpose was highly instrumental in a pervasive post-racial utopia. As Sarita Malik um, goes on to suggest, the responses to report imbued a surge of proactive responses in favor of cultural diversity in the arts and media, rather than, it should be noted, against racism. Remedying cultural inequality, of course, cannot by itself remedy racial inequality, which should have been the alpha and omega of the McPherson report. Here, a depolitical post-racialism emerges through cultural plurality in arts, media, literature, theatre and film that allows the culture and the celebration of difference to master structures of power associated with the production of class and ethnic inequality. I'd like to make it clear that I support the idea that the diversification of any sector should be welcomed, and there is much to celebrate. At the turn of the century saw the proliferation of diverse strands of mainstream media. But the question that the contemporary situation poses is what does the BBC, who have had 29 diverse initiatives since 2004, still try to convince that diversity really matters to them? Why does the Arts Council report suggest a significant underrepresentation of people from black and ethnic minority backgrounds? Why does the BFI claim that the industry has a pandemic lack of inclusion? Why are we in a perpetual moment of mass public dialogue on diversity? <laughs> it's because diversity on its own is a benign concept. What's become apparent in the last 20 years is that diversity has meant a certain type of inclusion. It is yet to present a challenge to the fundamental forms of racial exclusion in the industry. There is something profoundly concerning about an attempt to diversify institutions while ignoring the industrial structure itself. For example, last year Channel 4 revealed its needs significant action to close its ethnic minority pay gap and set a target of 20% ethnic minority leadership by 2020. This sounds very familiar to us. Reactionary policy is welcomed, but a generally progressive diversity agenda would require Channel 4 and others to reveal the unequal conditions that first produced the pay gaps. Equally, a radical diversity means that one can no longer consider the issue of racial inequality without bringing into the frame questions of class within race. Diversity has become exceedingly cosmopolitan in its ability to recruit difference within the arms of power. And we have seen in recent years the inclusion of ethnic minorities within the culture and creative industries. But in the main, this has been to the benefit of the ascending black British middle class. This is not to suggest that those ethnic minorities who have established careers have somehow transcended their race, but to insist that the creative industries themselves have been particularly skilled at recruiting those who have the same class background, those who already possess tremendous amounts of cultural and economic capital. How to change the situation is a key policy discussion. How do we ensure that the industry embraces structural transformation at the center? Firstly, 
the use of testimony can be a really conducive method of analyzing how and to what degree individuals can be excluded by dominant cultures within institutions. Because data analysis cannot provide insights alone into the more sophisticated forms of exclusion. Therefore, anecdotal evidence is crucial for a policy approach that is both purpose-driven and accurately reflects the experiences of those excluded from the sector. The perpetual nature of diversity action can also be related to the lack of ownership by the industry as being allies of inequality. Very few policy literatures acknowledge that there have been past or existing practices within the sector that have been racist or classist in their internal structures. Terms such as underrepresentation or unconscious bias do not accurately describe the nature of the issue. This absence of ownership of existing inequalities has produced a naturalistic language in describing both the causes and the responses to racial inequality. Because the accusation that must underpin all diversity initiatives is that there have been and remain certain areas in the cultural industries that are discriminative on the basis of race. It's highly ambiguous to suggest that this isn't a premise that's in operation within the confines of managing a cultural institution in the UK. But equally, it's highly disingenuous to insist that racial inequality, which has been established as institutional in every fabric of public life, from the police, to education, to our legal systems, to our economic structure, is an exception in the cultural and creative industries. Are they homogeneously equal? What makes them instinctively equal? <coughs> Diversity is the index of racial equality, not the beginning. It's what we experience organically when the structures of multimodal racial inequality have been dismantled. But there is a discourse at play, a genre of diversity that has become so topical, it's also become a disruptor for our traditional understandings of racial inequality. In a moment that the industry purports to be of seismic change, at the same time has rejected all the narratives that the challenge of racial equality built its legitimacy on. This is the axis upon which the entire self-sustaining diversity genre has been constructed, one that conflates anti-racism with the post-racial. Thank you. Our final speaker this evening is Dr. Faiza Shaheen from <coughs> CLASS, the Director of CLASS. I'll keep this brief. Um, Clive asked me to come along tonight to talk a little bit about some of the work that I've been doing over the years, in particular around the economy, and I really want to just pull out a few graphs. I'm sorry, I'm such a cow bringing up graphs at this time of night um, uh, to, to demonstrate some of, some of the data that still sort of shocks me, actually, after all these years working on some of these issues. I should start by saying I was here last week uh, talking about class inequalities and absolutely agree about these intersections. I'm so proud to run an organization called CLASS. Um, and, you know, last week I had a story about being really angry about class inequalities, uh, and it was actually both an, an element of white um, middle-class privilege, both those things. And, and this week I was uh, mistaken for another lefty brown woman. I'm not Ashokar. Um, by a prominent, by a prominent uh, conservative politician, the same conservative politician that couldn't see the difference between Chukaramuna and Chris Eubank. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, she would go insane looking at our panel today. And what... <laughs> And, you know, whilst it's like something that I had a proper laugh about, and you should see the Twitter replies to, to her, but, I mean, seriously, when prominent politicians cannot see the difference between us, there is clearly an issue. Um, you know, they say about not being able to see race. Maybe she just sees race. <laughs> and, you know, her response to... Um, she didn't apologise to us, but she, uh, it became a BBC Newsbeat story, and... Uh, and her response to them was like, oh, I got confused because they sounded the same. So we don't just all look the same, we all sound the same as well. <laughs> I mean, let me just start by saying how much, um, you know, the McPherson report, I was, I, I'm one of these people that was brought up in the 80s and, you know, one of the first things I remember my dad saying to me was about how racist this country is. Uh, and I remember him, he was a dark-skinned Fijian man, you know, getting stopped by the police. I mean... My dad was a bit dodgy, but he did get stopped by the police quite a lot more than you would expect. Um, and, and, you know, and, and always, always been told that, be, you know, be mindful, the police are racist. And, and, and when the McPherson report came out, and I was really young, but my dad had been paying close, to t close attention and um, thinking like, oh, wow, they're like finally admitting it. And of course, it was not news to us that the police were institutionally racist, but at the same time that, you know, maybe maybe this is really gonna, they're really going to do something now. Um, and here I am this many years later still talking about massive race inequalities. And, it, and it's upsetting, isn't it? I mean, um, we've really got to have the next 20 years. In 20 years' time, we've just got to have a very different story to tell. Um, I want to talk about prejudice. I want to talk about decision-making. I want to talk about the economy. Let me start by um, bringing up this graph, which is something that I worked on. Sorry, it's the wrong source there. It's um, from a from a BBC documentary that I worked on called Will We Ever Have a Black Prime Minister? And it was taken from a study done by an academic in Bristol. Um, and it looks at pupil assessment and exam scores between the ages of 7 and 16. And you'll see here the light grey line in white, um, the white ethnic group, and then you have black African, black Caribbean. You see this dip, especially for black Caribbean, between 7 and 14. Um, and then you see this quite noticeable uptick between 14 and 16. Now, why is that? Uh, we asked the academics about what explained this. And when they looked into it, this is the first time that tests are anonymized. Right? I've had to give this presentation to a room full of head teachers. Um, and, and, you know, it's, th this, shocked, this shocked me, even after all these years of working on these issues. Um, and I know that a lot of my friends who've got kids, um, who are black African, black Caribbean, who've got kids, didn't, don't know what to do with this, right? People might want to call it unconscious. <coughs> Conscious. It's definitely bias, right? It's definitely prejudice. It is there. It exists. Um, it comes out in the data in multiple ways, and that's what we're hearing again and again tonight. Um, and it may be, you know, what Liam Neeson was talking about this week, although he wasn't very honest in understanding where, that, where his views were coming from. On policy, and I want to reiterate this point, that this isn't subconscious, this isn't, you know, something done by accident. This is on purpose. What this shows us here is austerity is not just a classist uh, policy, it's a racist policy and it's a sexist policy. 
policy. What it shows us, and this is taken from Runnymede's um, and Women's Budget Group research, uh, is that the poorest third were most affected by austerity, and it's the poorest um, black and Asian, and then it's more than that, it's the black and Asian poorest women uh, that have had the biggest impacts, the biggest cuts to their, in to their incomes. Um, this is, this is a racist policy, and I often say to people that when people try and make out this narrative of it's the white working class that are racist, not the white working class that put these policies in place. Right? Um, you know, it's, it's very simple how they could have solved this. They could have done an equality assessment. They do distributional analysis on the budget. They hide it in Annex D. I'm the geek that always looks at it. Um, and I, I know from people that work in the Treasury that they don't do that before they've made the decisions about policy. They do it afterwards just as a tick box exercise. So it pays, you know, pay, they pay no mind to who will be most affected by their policies. Let's talk about the economy. This is um, the proportion on zero-hour contracts by ethnicity. Um, and you can see disproportionately it's, it's a black ethnic group. Um, just overall in terms of insecure employment, so that's both temporary contracts and zero-hour contracts, uh, the black, black Caribbean, black African ethnic group, 12% compared to 5% for the white ethnic group. Um, for me, and this is me as an economist speaking, the way in which inequality has grown in our economy, in which it's structurally embedded in our economy, has combined with prejudice to look like this. So it's the same way in which we can understand why it is that so-called women's work, right, childcare, social care, is constantly underpaid, right? You'll be very naive if you think, if you don't think that part of the reason that some of the sectors that are the lowest paid have the most women and the most ethnic minorities in it isn't to do with that, isn't to do with prejudice. The market is racist because people are involved in the decisions about how much people are paid. And people have prejudice. You know, and we have to combine this with the fact that um, it doesn't matter. This is, this is the lower end, right? This is zero-hour contracts. Um, if you look at the other end, we know that it takes longer for graduates, black graduates, ethnic minority graduates, to find work. Um, there was a Guardian study done recently that showed that you have to send 80% more applications if you have a Middle Eastern-sounding name or an African-sounding name to get some kind of success, to get an interview. That, that is, I mean, they do these, I've seen these studies over the years. I mean, they do it every few years, and it's always bad. It hasn't changed. It still very much exists. Um, so, you know, for me, the economy is racist. Um, and, you know, also, of course, housing is racist, and, and, and David, um, David brought it up there. You know, gentrification is essentially, I'm watching what's happening in Walthamstow. It, who's getting pushed out? These are racist policies, um, and we just don't see them like that. We see them as a consequence of the market, um, and we have to understand the racial element. And I'm just because I'm speeding this up a bit, I just want to end on thinking about what we do, and I'm glad that this chimes with what others have said. Um, and this is about power. Now, this is a graph here um, that shows, that demonstrates the, the importance of power. Um, the red line is the income share going to the top 1% um, from the 1970s to 2014. And, and, of course, we know this story, right? They've got richer and richer. Um, most of them aren't black or ethnic minority, right? Um, 
And we've seen at the same time trade union membership fall. Now this isn't a coincidence. What this story tells us is essentially that when workers can't come together and fight for their wages, fight for their rights, uh, when they are unable to raise their collective voice against the owners, uh, the bosses, that they get a smaller share of the pie. Now, when we think about this, and the trade union movement has not always been good when it comes to race, let's face it, or gender. Um, when we think about this, when we think about what needs to happen going forward, um, and it has to be about how we collectively come together. Um, that will be in our workplaces, that will be in our universities, in our educational places, um, that will be in our communities, that will, be, uh, that will be in this country in terms of governance. That's partly why I'm running. I'm running against... Ian Duncan Smith in a seat that used to, a part of which um, Churchill was an MP in. Um, you know, I feel that it's up to us, and I'm looking to, to young black and Asian minority fat people in the room. We can't wait for someone else to do it. Because it's 20 years since McPherson, and we're still here. And that power, when we talk about power, that's our power. That's our ability to stand up. That's our ability to organize and come together and make sure that in 20 years' time, I don't have to give this lecture. Instead, we can be talking about the amazing success we've had at changing the structures of the economy and tackling the prejudice that exists in so many of us, the prejudice that so many of us are so unwilling to admit to in this country. We've got to a point where it's worse to, be, to call someone a racist than to be a racist yourself. <laughs> um, I'll leave it there, but look forward to the discussion. Your talks. Uh, my name is Daniela Naj. I'm a, a lecturer at Queen Mary University of London. Uh, my question is to David, first of all, and then to Kalwan Popal. Uh, so first of all, David, I, I really liked when you came out after Grenfell and you made a very impassioned sort of speech and, and really talked, and I think you know some of the victims as well who were affected. I, I researched Grenfell, so I'm, I'd love to have a conversation with you about that. But, you know, once you dig a bit deeper, you realize that a lot of the failures, a lot of the reasons why these people died are also down to policymakers, lawmakers such as yourselves, the Labour Party as well, who has not done enough, who has failed to, to introduce legislation that would protect these people, right? There were no sprinklers in that tower. There were, there were no protections. There were no escape routes, right? There were, and this is down to policymakers. So what are you, and Labour councils, right, that are also cleansing people out of London, let's face it, right, that are forcefully moving people to other areas of the country. So, and, and this impacts disproportionately black people, right? So what are you as lawmakers going to do about What is the Labour Party that supposedly cares about working class people going to do about this, right? Thank so that's you. number one. Thank and you just the question. Um, a guy at the back. Hi, thank you for your uh, talks. Um, how um, would you explain the likes of Sajid Javid, who's the Home Secretary, and Sadiq Khan being elected to office in the various positions that they are? We do live in a very difficult time, but they do hold uh, important public offices. Um, I can fully agree with your lectures and fully agree with your points, but I, I fail to understand how someone like Sajid Javid can rise to the position that he has in a party which is historically been known to be not so friendly to be AME groups. Uh, so I just wanted your take on that. Thank you. And guy at the back. 
in the... Actually, I can't see what colour your shirt is. <laughs> uh, thank you. Sorry, thank you to all of you for, for that. One thing that sort of came out, I think, in David's point was about... It came up briefly about the ethnic pay gap. And then we heard briefly about sort of difference within and between. So now with the gender pay gap sort of reports coming out last year and now the Law Society talking about gender, uh, ethnicity pay gaps and the government even suggesting that's the next step, how do we really distill that to make it more about the differences within and between, between sort of Asian backgrounds and black backgrounds, rather than just being, oh, these are ethnic minorities and these are white people, and how do we actually get that as a resolution rather than just separating between two different stages? Thank you. So over to our panel. David, perhaps first, and then... Well, just on the Labour Party, I have tried to be very clear that the Labour Party is not immune to racism. The Labour Party... In fact, it is often the case that the most liberal of spaces, whether it's the BBC or the Guardian newsroom, hide behind the liberalism. And in what I said, I said that we've got to be a bit cautious about equality per se, if we're not also dealing with inequality. So I'm not here to say that the Labour Party is the font of all wisdom and there aren't profound challenges within that. You know, one of the things I've pushed the Labour Party very hard on are all women shortlists and then um, with f female shortlists that benefit black women, but actually there's a scarcity of black men making their way through. And when I'm in the community I represent or if you could, you're in Tower Hamlets, actually uh, Muslim men, black men are very, very vulnerable and need representation. There's also, and it came up in one of the contributions, it, it's not about having certain kinds of black uh, experience for a long time. Me, Diane, um, Paul Botang, you know, going to these, uh, you know, I went to Harvard, I went to Cambridge. These, it's a certain kind of model that is required. So, so, look, I'm not here to defend what is the indefensible, and I'm afraid I'm not either able to say, Labour, I'm a backbencher, um, calling it as it is, so you'd have to put your questions to Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> and I've also, I've also said this, in a way, and that's why uh, I'm a bit of an irritant in the system, I don't care which white man from Islington is running the Labour Party. It's my job to prod quite hard about progress for the kind of people I represent. And I think the clip that you saw on, on, on Grenfell, I got quite emotional because I talked about the agency and I was pushed very hard. The, the establishment pushed me very hard on questioning uh, the judge that was appointed to lead the inquiry. And I questioned whether he'd even been into a council estate, lived in one. And it was basically to say, and, and this comes back also to the question on the um, sort of inequalities, the, the BBC and pay differentials. It's basically to say, look, um, really in 2019, after so many years of of black and ethnic minorities qualifying themselves and becoming lawyers, becoming QCs, we can't find an eminent judge? So that, that was the question, but I was still pushed very hard on it. So, in, in a sense, 
all of these challenges still exist. Um, there are inequalities within groups, of course, to that question. Of course, there are, there are in a, you know, in a way, when David Cameron was talking about needs blind a university, he was being lobbied quite hard by a certain uh, capture of some Asian communities within the Conservative Party who were sending their kids to Eton and public schools but still finding that Patel stopped them getting in to Oxford and Cambridge. If you, if you cancel out the name, but actually on the UCAS form, you've still done all the things, the white guys, that you can get in. That does not benefit the black kid from Tottenham. So, so of course there are issues within ethnicity, and that's about getting into the detail um, which the system is reluctant to do, never mind the general preferencing when you get into the diversity of white women over ethnic groups. And there is a pecking order, and we have to challenge and push that and examine where power lies and why it is preserved. Thank you. I hope that partly addresses the uh, second question. Um, Faisal, would you like to respond to the issue of intra-minority ethnic pay gaps and inequalities? Um, yeah, I mean, just to say, we know, we know that those exist. I mean, I think there was a study quite recently that showed that in aggregate, uh, ethnic minorities are losing out by 3.2 billion uh, in wages when compared in terms of that, the, the, that gap between white and ethnic minority workers. And, and also that exists in the police force. So there is an ethnic pay gap within the police force, um, which you would think, given the McPherson report and all, all of the focus that the police force gets, um, they would have at least sorted it there and at least made sure it wouldn't come up there. Um, I actually wanted to say something on, um, on labor policy. And I, I absolutely think that we need to be pushing much more locally, local authorities. We need to be just doing a lot more um, to make sure that we stand up for things like freedom of movement, for instance, that we don't cower to, to anti-immigration sentiment. At the same time, some of the, some of the projects around investment, um, investment, regional investment, some of the uh, commitments to up minimum wages, uh, to do something about gender inequality, et cetera, will disproportionately affect um, ethnic minority communities in a, in a positive way. Um, and so, you know, I think some of it's there, but we always need to be pushing. There's, there's no perfect party right now, um, but there is an opportunity for us to push because the Labour Party is a democratic organisation, or it should be. So, um, you know, yeah, we, I, think, I think it's important to say that, that, you know, we didn't have that before. I've been working on economic inequality for a long time. And again and again, I've just had politicians say to me, Labour politicians as well, in the past, that say, oh, no one cares about that. We'll focus on poverty or we'll focus on equality of opportunity. But we do have people in charge right now that will do something about the overall economic inequality. Thank you. Kelwan. Um, just in relation to higher education, there's recent evidence that's just been published that, to show that there is a BME ethnic pay gap, particularly at professorial level, um, and there is evidence to show that. Um, but firstly, I just want to say that within higher education policymaking, and indeed within much of policymaking, but I speak in terms of a, being an expert on higher education, there's a significant amount of evidence to show that policymaking has benefited white women significantly. So gender has taken precedence over race. Um, and it's only very recently um, that race has now come to the fore and it's at the moment. We're, we're in a historical moment where race is suddenly, again, after 25 years, become even more important. So I think that 
with the, with the initiative of the race equality charter mark, we may see in 10 years' time that that may make a difference. Um, so I remain hopeful. Just to respond briefly on the Savage Javid and the Sadiq question. Look, the, um, the, uh, we're now in a place, we are in a place, this is some progress, where I think it's actually quite hard in the UK because of diversity and inclusion for any Prime Minister to have a cabinet that is not diverse. But that is patronage. Mm. Um, and there are other institutions, important ones, like the judiciary, that are terrible. And look at my review, um, where actually if there were more scrutiny and patch, if you just, it was still, still the knock on the shoulder and not this apparently transparent scheme which they call the Judicial Appointments Commission, we might have more black and ethnic minority judges. But because apparently it's transparent, they create a new system and actually the new system is discriminatory, becoming a black or ethnic minority judge. There are no black women sitting in the London Crown Courts dealing with criminal trials. That is how bad it is. And, you, and my review found that there were completely different sentencing outcomes for black men and women, particularly in relation to drug offences, and the judiciary still can't explain why. I think this audience knows why. And so there are some real issues. And on, and on Sadiq Khan, Sadiq learnt, to some extent, from those who came before him about the levers of power within the Labour Party, and I'm not being tough on Sadiq, it's great, he built on, on um, you know, uh, other ethnic minority pol politicians who understood how, to, how the Labour tribe, and it is a tribe, the unions and other things work to secure that nomination. It's right to say that London voted for Sadiq uh, because I do think that the ethnic minority breakdown in London and the sort of ease if in itself meant that we, it was ripe for an ethnic minority Member of Parliament, and that's why myself, Diane, and Sadiq uh, were able to run, and in the end, Tessa Jail didn't get it. So I don't think London is necessarily representative of the country. And look, in a sense, you could ask the question why did it take London so long when we've had city mayors in American cities for decades and decades and decades? Okay, thank you very much. I'm afraid we've run out of time. We're not able to take any more questions. Um, I hope that you've, I don't think, enjoyed the right word to talk about uh, <laughs> our discussion this evening. I guess um, yeah. the point is to say I hope that we won't be here again in 20 years' time, as several of our speakers have said. And if you can join me in thanking them for...